I'd like to read Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. We'll pray and then we'll dive into our study of the Word of God. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. They did not, but they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. When they came to Capernaum, when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them, taking him in his arms. He said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come before you this morning, our our hearts are sad over the news from Israel where there is war, where your people are once again being attacked We pray for your people, we pray for Israel, we pray for the Jews, we pray for their deliverance from this situation, we pray also, Lord, that they might come to know their Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, through this crisis in their country and in their lives. Uh, We know they're your people, and we commit them to you. Also, Lord, as we look at events in this world and in the Middle East, We wonder whether it's soon that you're coming. We know it's always imminent. And we are so looking forward to seeing our Lord. We're so looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming. Lord, may we be faithful to you while we wait. May we be growing in the truth and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior. May we be growing in his grace as we act graciously toward those around us in response to the grace you've given us. Thank you for salvation, which you offered to us fully and freely by simply believing in your Son. I pray for any in either of our services this week who have yet to trust Christ that they might make that important decision. And Father, for those of us who know Christ, who have trusted him as our Savior, we pray that we are a good exhibit to the world of him, that we may have a good witness, that we may grow in our faith. Thank you, Lord. Help us to Put this passage of Scripture into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a 1954 film entitled Magnificent Obsession. Have any of you here ever heard it or seen it? Okay, I've got two people in two services. It's the story of a spoiled playboy, and I'm, I'm reading here from the Wikipedia summary. 
It's the story of a spoiled playboy named Bob Merrick whose reckless, whose reckless behavior causes him to lose control of his speedboat. Rescuers sent for the nearest resuscitator, which was located in Dr. Phillips' house across the lake. While the resuscitator is being used to save Merrick, Dr. Phillips suffers a heart attack and dies. Merrick ends up a patient at Dr. Phillips' clinic where most of the doctors and nurses resent the fact that Merrick inadvertently caused Phillips' death. Helen Phillips, Dr. Phillips' widow, receives a flood of calls, letters, and visitors, all offering to pay back loans that Dr. Phillips refused to accept repayment of during his life. Many claimed he refused by saying it was already used up. Edward Randolph, a famous artist and Dr. Phillips' close friend, explains to Helen what that phrase means. This helps her understand why her husband left little money even though he had a very successful practice. Merrick, who had once been a medical student but had abandoned his studies, discovers why everyone dislikes him. He runs from the clinic but collapses in front of Helen's car and ends up back at the hospital where she learns his true identity. After his discharge, Merrick leaves a party drunk. Merrick runs off the road and ends up at the home of Edward Randolph, the famous artist, who recognizes him. Randolph explains the secret belief that powered his own art and Dr. Phillips' success. Merrick decides to try out this new philosophy. Well, what is this philosophy that the doctor, and by the way, this is based on a true life doctor, uh, this, this particular story. Uh, what is this secret belief or this belief that motivated these people? It's best said this way. Fulfillment is best achieved by providing secret service for others. Fulfillment is best achieved by providing secret service for others, especially for people in need done in secret. Put another way, it's doing wonderful things for people in need. The doctor was obsessed with giving himself to others. Well, the story of the film shows how, he, how Merrick turned from being a drunken, spoiled playboy, hated for his selfishness, to being a respected neurosurgeon who was obsessed with doing good for others. The way Jesus talked about this magnificent obsession in chapter 9 and verses 30 to 37 is he said, if anyone wants to be first, if anyone wants to be great, he must be the very last and servant of all. That is the main teaching in our, in our passage this morning. The main teaching in our passage this morning, true greatness is a matter of service. True greatness is a matter of service, not status. Humility and servanthood are hallmarks of the disciple of Jesus Christ. Humility and service are hallmarks of the disciple of Jesus Christ. Have you noticed as we've gone through this book, uh, which is 
Mark is one of my favorite books because of its emphasis on Jesus' actions. Have you noticed that when Jesus gets alone with his disciples, when he teaches them, his teaching is counterintuitive to the way we think. His teaching is counterintuitive to the way we think. For instance, Jesus taught his disciples that the way to life is death. The way to a fulfilling life, the way to really live is to put to death selfishness, to put to death self-searching, to put to death self-will. The way to life is death. That seems counterintuitive. Jesus taught his disciples that the way to glory is suffering. That again seems counterintuitive. The way to glory is to suffer. It takes suffering to get to glory. God uses suffering in our lives for good. That seems counterintuitive to us. In our passage this morning, Jesus is teaching that the way to greatness is servanthood. The way to greatness is servanthood. Again, it seems counterintuitive. You see, the way we live and the way we think is often antithetical to the way Jesus desires us to think and the way Jesus desires us to live. In other words, the very natural things that you and I think and do are usually wrong. It's that simple. The things you and I think and the things we do are usually wrong. Jesus spent his teaching ministry among the people and his teaching ministry among the disciples showing them the difference. The way we live and the way we think is often antithetical to the way Jesus desires us to live. And so often Jesus' way seems foolish to us. It's amazing how many times, and we're going to see this in this passage this morning, how many times we're thinking different thoughts than God's thoughts. We're thinking different thoughts than God's thoughts. Jesus is going to talk once again with the second time he talks to his disciples about his coming death and his coming burial and his coming resurrection And the disciples, they're not thinking about that. They're not hearing that. All they can think about is which one of us, 12, is the greatest one. And before we get too judgmental about them, how often are we thinking God's thoughts? How often are we speaking to God about what he is speaking to us? Or are we off on our own worlds? Are we off thinking our own things and doing our own thing? Humility and servanthood are hallmarks of the disciples of Jesus Christ. True greatness is a matter of service, not status. Of service, not status. Well, there's two sections to our passage of Scripture this morning. There's verses 30 to 30. 32, which contains the second passion prediction, the second prediction of the passion. And then there is in verses 33 to 37, Jesus' teaching on greatness. 
We read in verse 30, they left that place. Now, when you're doing Bible study, the first thing you want to ask is, okay, what place? They left what place? Ask questions of the text. They left what place? Well, many scholars believe that they left Caesarea Philippi, which was north of where they were, north of Galilee, north of the Sea of Galilee, and they made their way south. They were ultimately making their way south to Jerusalem where Jesus would be crucified, where Jesus would give his life for you and for me, where Jesus would be resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven. They were going south across the northeastern corner of Galilee, the northeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee, and they were headed to Capernaum. Now you'll remember, and, and we'll see that when we get into the last part of this portion of Scripture, you'll remember that Capernaum was the home of what disciple? Somebody, now somebody remembered in the first service. I won't tell you who he is, Jason. <laughs> Peter, that's right. It was Peter. That was the home of Peter and his brother Andrew, and that's where they were headed. So they were headed south, ultimately toward Jerusalem, but in the interim toward Capernaum. And Jesus, we read that Jesus, uh, uh, they passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. In other words, his public ministry in Galilee was ended. His public ministry in Galilee was ended, and he was now resolutely headed south to his death, to his burial, to his resurrection, to his bearing your sin and my sin upon his body. He resolutely set his sights to go to Jerusalem. And the public ministry in Galilee was ended. But Jesus wants to spend this time away from the crowds. He wants to spend this time teaching his disciples. Teaching his disciples. And that's what we read in the text. Because he was teaching his, his disciples. You may remember, I hope, from Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Jesus laid out a summary of his uh, teaching, how his teaching methodology, how he taught when he chose the 12 disciples, and it tells us what he did to teach them. Number one, it says that Jesus chose 12 so that he might be with them. Part of Jesus' disciples' uh, training method was to be with them, to be with the disciples, for them not to be in a classroom situation, not to be in chairs around a table, but rather so that they might see his heart, they might see his thoughts, they might see his life and see how he lived and see if he lived what he taught. They got to observe him up close. They got to observe him up close. That was part of his teaching method, that they might be with him so they could observe him. Also, the other side of that coin is he could observe them. They were surprised in our passage this morning to learn that Jesus knew that they were talking about which of them was the greatest. So, to be with them, 
The second part of his teaching method that we see in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, is that he sent them out. That is, it didn't stop at his training them. It didn't stop at them observing him. It didn't stop at his teaching them. He wanted them to do something with what, he was, what they were learning. He wanted them to do something with what they were learning from him. They, he wanted them to do something with what they were seeing in his life. That's what Chris was talking about in his announcement. We, we need to have a flow-through philosophy, one person called it. A flow-through philosophy. That is, that we're not damming up in our lives all the great things that we're learning. Instead of damming them up, which will lead only to a, 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 a stinking pool of water. <laughs> but we need to be letting that water out, that water of life out of our lives and letting it flow to other people's lives so that what we're learning, we're doing something with. What we're learning, we're, we're using in the lives of other people. In light of this, I found something interesting as I was reading in my John Maxwell Daily Reader. John Maxwell, for those of you who don't know, is a, a believer, a Christian, who does a lot of teaching about leadership, a lot of teaching about leadership. And uh, he said something that struck a chord with me as I thought about Jesus teaching his disciples and being with them and sending them out. And I read this in John Maxwell. We've been told that in hospital emergency rooms, and by the way, I, I don't know anything about the medical profession except how to have my heart listened to. I'm good at that getting my blood pressure taken. So those of you who are here who, who may be in the medical profession, you can determine if this is true or not. I'm taking Maxwell's word. We've been told that in hospital emergency rooms, nurses have a saying, watch one, do one, teach one. Anybody ever heard that? Anybody here? We have somebody. Awesome. Watch one, do one, teach one. It refers, Maxwell says, it refers to the need to learn a technique quickly, jump right in and do it with a patient, and then turn around and pass it on to another nurse. And I thought, how awesome is that? That's Jesus' teaching method. That's Jesus' teaching method. Learn it, do it, pass it on. Isn't that great? Learn it, do it, pass it on. That's what we ought to be doing. We ought to learn it. We ought to put it into our lives and do it. And then we need to pass it on. As, as Chris was saying about one way to do that is in the greenhouse. One way to do that would be in the greenhouse. So we learn it, we do it, and pass it on. Jesus is teaching his disciples and he focuses on instructing them and he makes the second prediction of his coming death and burial and resurrection. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will arise. He will arise. The first prediction was back in chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. This is the second prediction. There'll be a third prediction that Jesus will bring to his disciples in chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, when we get to that portion of Scripture. 
this prediction was a little different than the earlier prediction because this one includes the element of betrayal. The element of betrayal. And the question that arises is betrayed by whom? Betrayed by whom? You see, Jesus said, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Well, it's easy. Many people say, well, that same phrase, being betrayed, is used of Judas, so apparently is talking about Judas in this passage. But you see, there's something different here in this passage. This is a futuristic present tense in Greek. And you say, well, I didn't come here for a Greek lesson. No, I know you didn't. Uh, a futuristic present is an important use of the present tense. It presents events in the future which are certain of having of happening events in the future which are certain to happen in other words this could literally be translated this way the son of man is betrayed into the hands of men as if it has already happened it is that sure it is that sure as if it is, it's expressed as if it has already happened. Well, the word betrayal means to be delivered up or to be handed over. Well, who delivered Jesus up or who handed him over? That's the question in this passage. Who delivered him up? Who handed him over? And the futuristic present leads us to understand that it's talking here about God the Father. It's talking about God the Father. God the Father is the one who delivered up Jesus to, to sin and death. God the Father is the one who handed over His Son to be the sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. You see, that's the teaching of Scripture. We don't often think about that. We want to blame Judas, and he is certainly blameworthy. We want to blame the Romans, and they are blameworthy. We want to blame the Jews, and they are blameworthy. But what we need to understand is that Jesus, our Savior, was delivered up, handed over by God the Father. Because that's the only, one that sin, the only way that sin could be taken care of. Your sin and my sin. That's the only way. And when I think about that and when I, I study this and when I, I, I meditate upon this and I think about, about it from the standpoint of a father. I'm a father of two sons. I tell you what, you would be in trouble if I had to give one of them over to death for you or for myself because I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. But that's how much God the Father loved you and loved me and how much God the Father wanted us to have a way that sin and death could be taken care of. He loved us that much that he delivered up his son. He delivered up his son for death. He handed over his son for death. That, that thought should humble every one of us. That thought should well up 
with gratitude to God. One writer put it this way, it is not for nothing that Jesus reminds us again that he must die. He would have us know that his death was the great end for which he came into the world. He would remind us that death, the great problem, was to be solved. How God could be just and yet justify sinners. He did not come upon earth merely to teach and preach and work miracles. He came to make satisfaction for sin by his own blood and suffering on the cross. Let us never forget this. The incarnation and example and words of Christ are all of deep importance, but the grand object which demands our notice in the history of his earthly ministry is his death on Calvary. Oh, how often the world around us and sometimes even we ourselves focus on the wrong things. He, Jesus reminds us that he must die. It's a divine necessity. His death was the reason he came into the world. And by his death, God could be just and yet justify sinners. See, God couldn't just say, oh, no big deal, you sin. You, next time you'll get it better. Can't do that. Sin requires blood. Sin requires a payment. Sin requires a penalty. So what did God do? He handed over his own son. So that by his death, God could be just and yet justify sinners. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin Without the shedding of blood, the scripture says, there is no remission of sin. By his death, and here I'll give you a nice theological word. You can chew on this for a while. You'll enjoy it. It'll taste wonderful. By his death, God is propitiated. If you use the King James Version of the Bible, you'll find that word in 1 John. God, by his death, God is propitiated. That is a big way word that we don't need to use, which simply means this, by Jesus' death, God is satisfied. His justice is satisfied. That's how you and I can be forgiven. That's how you and I can have eternal life because God is satisfied. God's justice is satisfied. Jesus did not come to earth to merely teach and preach and heal and do miracles to give, or to give us an example of how to live. Jesus came to earth so that he might what? Die. For you and for me. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. By the way, before I, I deal with that, let me give you a couple of passages you might want to look up on your own uh, about God handing over his son. Acts 2.23 says, This man was handed over to you, speaking of Jesus, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men putting to death by nailing him to the cross. 
Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that, we, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The disciples didn't understand. Why were they afraid? They were afraid to ask. Well, there are a couple of possible reasons they would be afraid to ask. Number one, they might be afraid of being rebuked. Remember Peter back in chapter 8 and verse 33? When Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking my thoughts. You're thinking Satan's thoughts to Peter. That might dampen the conversation with the other disciples, right? So maybe they were afraid of being rebuked. Secondly, the second reason they might be afraid because they were getting maybe a sense of the full disclosure of Jesus' suffering, of what was ahead for Jesus. The parallel passage in Matthew 17 when it talks about their reaction, it adds these words, they were filled with grief. They were filled with grief. Maybe the full disclosure of Jesus' suffering is beginning to make a dent in their hard heads. The third reason they might be afraid is that they were preoccupied with themselves. That one rings true to me, especially when you read on in our passage this morning and he is talking to them about his coming death and burial and resurrection and they're talking about which of them might be the greatest. That kind of rings true to me that maybe they were afraid because they were more concerned with what it meant for them. They, they were preoccupied with the prospect of political power they didn't understand that the preconceived notions of the Messiah kept them from understanding what Jesus was saying to them. You know, sort of like, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up. Their minds were made up. Their minds were made up. And so they were afraid because they were really thinking about themselves. One writer said, never are we so slow to understand as when prejudice and preconceived opinions darken our eyes. Well, that's the first section, the teaching about the second, the second passion prediction of Jesus Christ in verses 30 to 32. Now we have in verses 33 to 37, Jesus teaching on greatness. Jesus teaching on greatness Verses 33 and 34, Jesus asks a question. That was a common method of his in his teaching was to ask questions. That it should be a lesson to you and to me that in our own teaching ministries that we need to make great use of questions. Uh, too many times in our teaching, we're interested in giving out answers when we ought to be thinking about what question might I spark in someone's mind, might I spark in their lives that 
might continue to gnaw at them until they found the answer themselves. You see, we can either give them the answer, and that makes it real easy, or we can ask a good question. Jesus was into asking questions. That was part of his teaching method as well. And so he initiates the conversation with a question. The question is in verses 33 and 34. The principle, he states, of greatness is in verse 35, and then he gives them an illustration in verses 36 and 37. They came up to Caper- they came to Capernaum, Peter's home, when he was in the- and when he was in the house, he asked them, "What were you arguing about on the road?" But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Now, who wants to sit down and say to Jesus, "By the way, when you were telling us about your passion, we were more concerned with ourselves." When you were telling us about your passion, we were more concerned with, with, which is, with which of us is the greatest. After all, it seems you have a favorite three, Peter, James, and John. Remember, Jesus often took them aside from the other elders, uh, the other uh, apostles. So which of us is the greatest? They're afraid to ask Jesus, rightly so. But that's what their discussion is about, and Jesus uses a question to ask them to bring that to their attention. What were you arguing about on the road? Questions are such a great way to teach. And um, I was thinking about this and thinking about this passage and ran across a section in the Daily Bread from September 17th. Many of you may use the Daily Bread. And it said this, and this caught my attention. For a man who was God and knew everything, Jesus sure asked a lot of questions. Uh, That's a great statement, isn't it? While we don't know his purposes, the writer went on, it's clear his questions prompted, prompted others to respond. He asked his disciples, Andrew, what do you want? In John 1, he asked blind Bartimaeus, and we'll be coming up to that in Mark chapter 10, what do you want me to do for you? He asked the paralyzed man, do you want to get well? Transformation happened for each of these individuals after Jesus' initial question. The initial question here is, what were you arguing about on the road? And then the writer made this point, and I think it's a really good one that you and I should consider. Is there someone you want to approach about matters of faith? Let me put that in a more common way. Is there somebody you want to witness to? I don't want a show of hands, but I bet you all of us have somebody we want to witness to. Is there someone you want to witness to, you want to approach about matters of faith? Ask God to give you the right question. That's a great way. That's a great way. We, we, we do it the opposite. We say we have to study enough before we can witness to somebody because we want to make sure we have all of the answers. And, and then we have Peter to blame for that. Be ready to give an answer for those who ask the hope that lies within you. Well, okay, but that's not the only thing. So we, we take it from that end, and we got to make sure that we know the four spiritual laws, and we got to make sure that we know the Roman road. We have to make sure that we know the bridge illustration. All good illustrations, and all would be great, 
for all of us to know. Nothing wrong with those. But sometimes that's not what's going to reach somebody for Jesus Christ. It's going to be a well-placed question that will rattle around in their head and bother them until they find an answer. Let me give you an illustration. I have a book I, I really like. It's uh, God's Little Devotional Book for Men. And it has some, some great illustrations. It's a little older now. It's from the 90s. Uh, but it has some great illustrations, and I'd like to share one with you. A preacher once preached an entire series of sermons on some very challenging scriptures in hope of winning one particular man of great intellect to Christ. In other words, this preacher planned his whole sermon series, chose scripture to convince one man knowledgeable in worldly things, of great intellect, convince him about Jesus Christ. Shortly after the series ended, to the preacher's delight, the man came forward to announce that he had become a convinced Christian and wanted to join the church. Pleased with himself, I love this part, pleased with himself, the preacher said, and which of my sermons was it that removed your doubts? The man replied, your sermons? It wasn't any of your sermons. Oh, the arrogance of pastors. <laughs> what was it then, the preacher asked, greatly disappointed. The man said, the thing that set me to thinking was when a poor woman came out of the church and stumbled down the steps right beside me. When I put out my hand to help her, she smiled and said, thank you. And then added, do you love Jesus Christ, my blessed Savior? He means everything to me. The man said to the preacher, I did not then, but I thought about what she had said, and I found I was on the wrong road. I still have many questions, but now Jesus means everything to me too. wasn't the preacher's great sermon series. All of the information he poured out for this one man that made a difference in his life that caused him to embrace Jesus Christ. It was one poor, stumbling woman who said, do you love Jesus Christ, my blessed Savior? He means everything to me. Oh, the power of questions. The power of questions. Think about next time, that next time you want to share your faith with someone. Well, sitting down, Jesus called the 12. If anyone wants to be first, now you see he's going to answer their question about which of them is the greatest. He's going to give them a way to greatness. It's going to be a way that they will not like. Because they wanted to be the greatness in the sense of the culture of their day. It was a very important thing to be greatest in the culture of their day. Because the greatness in that day meant that there was a pyramid. There were all these people at the bottom of the pyramid. And at the top was you. And they're serving you. That's greatness. Man, if you have all those people serving you, you've got to be a great person. Jesus said, that's not the way it works in my kingdom. 
That's not the way it works in my kingdom. He turned that triangle upside down and he put us at the bottom. And if we want greatness, we're serving everybody above us. That's true greatness. That's true greatness. Many years ago, a rider on horseback came across a squad of soldiers who were trying to move a heavy piece of timber. The rider noticed that a well-dressed corporal was standing by giving commands to heave. The piece of timber was just a little too heavy, however, for the group of men to move. Why don't you help them? The man on horseback quietly asked the important corporal. Me, the corporal responded with shock in his voice. Why, I'm a corporal, sir. The rider then dismounted and took his place with the soldiers. Smiling at them, he said encouragingly, Now all together, boys, heave. The big piece of timber moved easily with the help of the additional man. The stranger then silently mounted his horse. He said to the corporal as he prepared to ride on, The next time you have a piece of timber for your men to handle, corporal, send for the commander-in-chief. It was only then that the corporal and his men realized that the helpful stranger was none other than George Washington. If you want to be great, be the servant of all. The word servant here, one writer said, depicts one who attends to the needs of others freely, not one in a servile position as a doulos or slave, but rather Jesus did not condemn the desire to improve one's position in life, but he did, did teach that greatness in his kingdom was not determined by status, but by service. See, the problem of serving others, the problem of greatness is a problem uh, of, of attaining greatness by serving others is a problem of pride, a problem of pride. And the whole issue of pride is dividing. It's divisive to a church. It's divisive to all kinds of relationships. If you wonder about that, I don't have time, but look at 3 John. And it only has one chapter. So it's chapter 1, 3 John 1, around verse 9. The destruction that pride can cause. Well, Jesus said, if you want to be first, that means if you want to have the highest position, you have to be last. That's a deliberate, voluntary choice to be last. And you must be the servant of all. The word is diakonos. It's one who attends to the needs of others. One who attends to the needs of the others. The drive to be first destroys the peace of a church, destroys the peace of a family. Jesus said the way to greatness is to serve. The world's view of greatness is that greatness is based upon the greatest intellect or social connections or money or leadership skills or power. Jesus is reversing the world's view and the world's values and what he is saying to the disciples. One writer said that men and women willing to be last and servant of all for Jesus' sake are always few. Then Jesus illustrates his truth, his teaching in verses 36 and 37. He took a little child who, and had him stand among them. There is speculation that the little child was uh, a, a child of Peter's. That would be really fascinating, 
wouldn't it? We can ask when we get to heaven. Uh, if that was Peter's son or daughter. He took a little child and had him, oh, it's a him, uh, him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. The child, a child was the least significant person in Greco-Roman society of that day. To welcome means to serve or to show kindness to. Jesus is illustrating in this child that true greatness entails serving people, insignificant people. You see, a child cannot confer privileges. A child cannot prefer wealth, confer wealth. A child cannot confer status or power. A child can be served. That's the way to greatness. Now, I want to close in just a couple of thoughts here. Number one, have you thanked your, your child's greenhouse teacher, Awana leader, trail life leader? Have you taken the opportunity to say thank you to them? Because, you see, they're the great ones. They're the great ones ministering to a child. Somebody who can't confer privileges or wealth or status or power. Have you thanked your child's teacher? Secondly, do you want to be great? Do you want greatness in your life? Serve in the greenhouse. There are other ways I know you can. You don't have to tell me. Or you can tell me if you want to. It's okay. Uh, but one way to greatness is to serve in the greenhouse. DRBC needs you. Our children need you. Avery and Julie need you. Thirdly and lastly, when we ask for greenhouse teachers, for teachers in other ministry, we're calling you to the highest ambition and calling that you could get. We're not calling you to the last or the dregs. We're calling you to greatness. Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for Jesus' teaching, first of all, about his death and burial and resurrection. And all that that entails and all that that means for those of us who are followers of his. And Lord, we thank you for this teaching about greatness. Help us to be willing to serve those the world considers weak or insignificant. Those who can't do us any good. Help us to serve and thereby be seen as great in your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.